0: the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Greetings to everyone in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be in the house of God. We just sang that hymn about uh, that name. That name which will live on forever while kings and kingdoms shall forgotten be. Well, that uh, struck my mind this morning because in our study of Daniel this morning, we are going to talk about kings and kings that have been long forgotten or nearly forgotten. If they hadn't been recorded in scripture here, we would probably scarcely know about them at all. And It's not the kind of thing that we meditate on a lot but I think there are things we can learn as we turn to our text this morning Daniel chapter 8 and chapter 9 I would like to cover two chapters this morning While these chapters are not particularly related in their uh, the actual subject they deal with, uh, they both pertain to things that in Daniel's day were still future. So these were revelations of things that were to come. And I'd just like to comment on that... Um, that God saw fit to tell his servants the things which shall be hereafter. So there are things we know about the future that we would not know other than that God revealed them to us. And so it was with Daniel in the passages that we will look at Most of what he prophesied or was revealed there to him had to do with things that were to come in the future and have now been passed or fulfilled. However, there are certain portions of it that still pertain to things yet to come. But as we just think about the blessing... Of our God revealing to his servants those things which are to come hereafter. And the, the confidence that we can have in God. The God is not limited by uh, time and in circumstances. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows what is to come just as well as he knows what is in the past. And prophecy is simply history told in advance. It's what we uh, can expect to have come. So let's look in our uh, passage here this morning, Daniel chapter 8. And I won't be reading all of these uh, scriptures here in these two chapters. I'll read portions of it and make comment, point out certain ones. So you may need to have your Bibles open to that to follow completely. We'll begin reading here in Daniel chapter 8 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me. Even unto me Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw any vision, and it came to pass, when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw any vision, and I was by the river of ulai Then I lifted up mine eyes, and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beasts might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth, and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram and brake his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand therefore the he goat waxed very great and when he was strong the great horn was broken and, and for it came up four notable horns i'm sorry for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation? to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And it came to pass, when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then, behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ulaa, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright. And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. I will stop reading there for now. So... Here we have Daniel in a vision again. He sees these two beasts. First is a ram, which has two horns. One was higher than the other. And then there was the he-goat. And as we just read at the end of the passage there, that it's explained to Daniel what these represent. It says, the ram which thou sawest, Having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia, and the rough goat is the king of Greece. So these were kingdoms, which we would probably long have forgotten were they not recorded in Scripture. And they followed after the king of Babylon, or actually uh, here in uh, In the first verse, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me. And this was during the reign of the Babylonians that that kingdom was in existence then. Later, under Darius, was when the Medes and the Persians took over. So here is Daniel receiving this foreknowledge about these kingdoms. And you might... Think, as you consider this, what is the reason? These are all strange beasts, and what what does it mean? Well, I'll just try to explain, as we understand from history, and as it was clearly said here, what these these beasts represented kingdoms. And in our prior study there in chapter 7 we had the vision of the four beasts. And this uh, vision of four beasts we looked at was that of the kingdom of Babylon and that of Media Persia and then Greece and then that terrible kingdom that followed which seems to represent the Islamic uh, empire. But these two beasts now in this chapter 8 are actually representing two of the same kingdoms that were represented before. And so we have in the prior vision, there was first the lion, which was Babylon, and then there was a second beast like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side. Kind of the picture of a lopsided bear, if you will, or somehow it was raised up higher on one side. Now, it's interesting that in this vision of the ram, the ram had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. Well, historically, it's recognized that that is actually how things were. It was a joint kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, but one of them was stronger than the other. It came up a bit later, um, but there was a difference, so... In the one vision, there was a lopsided bear, and in this vision, it was a ram with two horns, one horn being higher than the other. And so it's described then a bit what, uh, how this was. And then as he sees this vision, verse 5, that I was considering, Behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth, and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. It seems like it was just a singular horn. This goat came. And this represents the kingdom of Greece or the king of Greece. As it's explained there in, toward the end of chapter 8. Just a couple of interesting things here in this description. Uh, This king of Greece would represent Alexander the Great, and historically he was one of the great kings of the earth. He did uh, some notable things. One of the principal things noted about his kingdom is the tremendous speed at which his armies moved and by which he conquered great territories. And that's represented by this he-goat that says, came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. It's almost like a flying uh, beast here. And it would match clearly what history says about Alexander the Great. After Alexander the Great uh, died at an early age in almost the height of his power, I believe he was only in his, I don't recall, somewhere in his 30s, early 40s, when he died. And the kingdom was partly divided or broken up, uh, principally among about four of his generals. And so... These, uh, it says here in verse 8, the he goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, the death of Alexander the Great. And for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Four generals, and kind of arose, and the kingdom went into four parts kind of the north, south, east, and west divisions and it waxed um, and then it says and out of one of them came forth a little horn which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land when it talks about the pleasant land it's referring to the land of Israel uh, where the people of God were had been So, we have the description here of a little horn. Now, in our previous study in in chapter 7, we had also a reference to a little horn. In verse 8 of chapter 7, this was the fourth beast, a different beast, in which... A little horn, I considered the horns, and behold there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots, and so on. Now here in this vision, we have again a little horn, but it's on a different beast than in the former vision, and One could ask the question, so are they the same? Why is there a little horn spoken of in one beast, and now here in the next vision it's on a different beast, actually earlier than the first one. But here is how it's understood, how I would understand it, Just putting in this little bit again about prophecy and thinking about the Old Testament and even if we look at the whole of history. There are many times in history that, that God sends a foreshadowing or there is an example in history where there is a later fuller fulfillment. We might call it a dual fulfillment of prophecy as well as what parallels that is the types in the Old Covenant and in the New. Uh, For example, there were men in the Old Testament, such as Joseph, who were a type of Christ. And we can look at many parallels. Uh, Moses, in his own way, was a type of Christ. And so were some of the other prophets, in each kind of in its own respective way. Well, I believe we have a bit of that going on here. And while it's not thoroughly explained here, it is known historically that in the toward the end of these four generals in their um, uh, the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire were kind of the two principal ones toward the end. And out of them, came in Little Horn, and that was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and he is known or thought of as a forerunner or a type of the Antichrist, that Antichrist that's spoken of to come in the end of time. So as we read through this, most of what we read here would have been true of this Antiochus Epiphanes as a ruler that came out of these four, the little horn um, it says waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east and toward the pleasant land Antiochus came into Israel there and he did uh, very terrible things he was He was a very ruthless man, and as it says then, and we'll go on here if you're in the scripture there, in verse 23, just following the passage we had read, in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. So that was true of Antiochus. He was a king of fierce countenance and is representing here just his, his uh, character, his fierceness and his cruelty. Um, as it just mentions, a king of fierce countenance. That would refer to his, um, his demeanor and his, his actions. This was true of Antiochus, and it is also true of the coming Antichrist, of which Antiochus is a forerunner or a foreshadowing. One of the things that Antiochus did, he came into the Holy Land and he tried to subdue what he thought was a rebellion. And he went into the holy place, into the sanctuary, and he desecrated the sanctuary. He did abominable things there. In a deliberate attempt to, to desecrate the holy place. So that was his that, that was what he did. And it's also a foreshadowing of what the Antichrist will do in the end of time. Now the interesting thing in verse 17, when we're talking about time here, the angel Gabriel who came and explained to him what this was, said there in verse 17, Understand, O Son of Man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. Now that is clearly a reference to the end of time, which we have not yet attained to. In the... uh, Not sure. Well, in verse 19 again it says, Which shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. So it is looking forward prophetically to the end of time, but it is actually making reference to uh, a man who did appear in history already, Antiochus Epiphanes, and describes what his character was and some of the things he did. And yet the angel said it's for the end of time. So here we have an example of a dual fulfillment, a looking at a certain character in history that actually became a type of what is yet to come. So many of the things that are said of Antiochus, for example, going back to verse 10. It waxed great even to the host of heaven and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Now that's an interesting parallel to what is said about Satan and Lucifer and the war that was in heaven and how his tail dragged a third of the host of heaven to the ground. So here we have... It, it may be hard to understand, it's a bit hard for me to understand, but it's some of the same picture is given here, where we have Antiochus Epiphanes representing the Antichrist, the Antichrist also being like Satan incarnate, if you will. There, there's, there's parallels between these entities, and I think we can just understand it to be referring to that same type of thing. I might mention here that there are the places for example some of the things we know about Satan for example in Isaiah and also in Ezekiel there are passages that talk about Satan uh, about him being in the garden of God and lifting himself above God and saying I will be like the most high but in those places it's Represented as the king of Tyre or the king of Babylon, again, like earthly deities or kings that were a type of Satan, or or kind of it's it's used as a bit of a picture there about the uh, kingdom and the power and so on. So where it reads there in verse 11, Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. That is spoken of as the Antichrist. He lift himself against the prince, the king of kings. And by him the daily sacrifice was taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down or desecrated. That's what Antiochus did, and that is what the Antichrist will do. Now let's uh, follow up here at the end of the chapter. Verse 24 And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power, and he shall destroy it wonderfully, and shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. That would have been true of Antiochus. It was, is, will be true of the Antichrist. And it was also said of Satan in Revelation chapter 12 where we have the picture of that scarlet colored beast that made war against uh, the woman represented Israel and the remnant of her seed and them which keep the commandments of God. So, again, the parallel between those various entities. Verse 25, and through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand and he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. I believe that parallels what is said of the Antichrist, who will gather all the armies of the world together to make war against the Lamb. But when he does, he shall be broken without hand. And the vision of the evening and the morning... Which was told is true. Wherefore shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. We have an advantage even over Daniel. In this, that much of what he foresaw here is now history, past. And we can see how it was fulfilled in detail. And yet, in that, there is also a foreshadowing and a prophecy of things yet to come that parallel this in, an, in some amazing ways. So now we'll continue on to chapter 9. <clears throat> and I'll read the first, uh, well it's about the first four verses. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God, And made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Well, perhaps I should read the next verse where he says, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Now there's, there's more in this prayer, but it is a prayer of repentance and acknowledgement that we, as he says, we have sinned. He's, he's uh, referring to the whole house of Israel. And we know from other places in scripture, the story here is that way back when they had entered into the promised land, God had told them through Moses that if they obey his word, keep his commandments and keep his precepts, he would prosper them, he would allow them to flourish, they would be his people, he would be their God and they would do well. But if they do not keep his commandments, if they forget the Lord God and go their own way, do not keep his judgments nor his ways, then the land would spew them out. And they would be cast out of the land and and they would be scattered abroad because of their iniquity. Well, years go by, years go by. Kings arise, they have their kingdoms, they have their days of prosperity and power and glory, the days of King David and then King Solomon, where there was peace and prosperity and people served the Lord and life was good. But kings arose that forgot and the people drifted away from keeping the commandments of the Lord. They began to seek after idols and God would send them prophets, prophets that would warn, prophets that remind them of the commandments of God and of the penalties that would follow if they did not heed God, but they turned a deaf ear. And if um, we read through Jeremiah, who was the prophet then who specifically told them That unless they repent, God is going to take you far away. And even became very specific that it was going to be the king of Babylon that would come. And that they should not resist him because he was the hand and judgment of God against them for their iniquity. Well, instead of humbling themselves and acknowledging iniquity, they resisted. And they acted like they had brass ears and iron faces, and they did not like Jeremiah, and they called him a traitor and and guilty of treason, and they ought to kill him. And, but God spared his life. And then God did just what he said he would do. He brought the king of Babylon, he came in and took over, and the people were taken captive. Daniel along with them. And so here is Daniel. It says, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. It's rather remarkable, but Daniel... He looked at what the book said, what the prophecies were. He read the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had specifically said by the word of the Lord that it would be 70 years, that they would be captive. So now Daniel is recognizing that that time is coming very close. They've now been in Babylon for nearly 70 years. And so the time is coming close when that will be at an end. So Daniel is moved here to acknowledge, as he says here, I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession. And so he goes on and lists Their sins and acknowledges that they transgressed against the Lord. They went their own way. God was the righteous judge who brought this judgment. Verse 8. He says, O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers. Because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God. Belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. So he's acknowledging that God is a righteous judge and and God is just in what he does. And that he, verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil is come upon us, yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities. And understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil. And brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous. In all his works which he doeth. For we obeyed not his voice. Pretty sobering. But it's very true. That. The things that man suffers today are because of disobedience to God. Now it may not even be our disobedience directly. We we tend to think that way at least because it was Adam after all that transgressed back in the garden. And so because of Adam death passed upon all men. But As the scripture clearly says, we have partaken in those same sins. We have rebelled against the Lord. Uh, We have done wickedly and have had to come in repentance before the Lord and acknowledge that we have sinned and God is the one who has mercy and forgiveness and that God is good and that he's right in his ways. Now verse 16, he says, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant, and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes, and behold our desolations, and the city which is called by thy name, for we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. So Daniel is making supplication for his people, asking the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. And reminding him that it's for his name's sake. And then, while he was speaking and praying, he got some further revelation. So let's read here in verse 20. And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me, and talked with me, and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter, and consider the vision." So here is Gabriel coming again with this message and a vision and helping Daniel to understand uh, what this is about. He mentions here that Daniel is greatly beloved. It brings to mind what is promised in the New Testament that without faith it is impossible to please God because he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And Daniel began his supplication to seek the Lord and he was rewarded. Now, you might think, well, how does that apply to me? Because I don't expect to receive some great revelation from the Lord, like Daniel did. But it is true for us that if we seek the Lord, he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He will give us a reward. He will help us. He will come to our aid. He is a God of mercy and forgiveness. And we need to come with a faith that is just humbly seeking God and expecting a reward uh, from God because those are the kind of people that God is looking for. So now Gabriel goes to tell him some more things which... Are probably in these next verses, are one of the most amazing and possibly also the most controversial prophecies in all of Scripture. Maybe not so much controversial, and yet it is because there are many different understandings of what it means. Because, on the one hand, it is very precise it has some amazing precision and definite things and yet it is also given in terms that are not so easy to understand at the first reading so one could write a whole book on just these few verses to try and explain all that is encompassed in this prophecy but we won't uh, be able to cover nearly all of that. So we'll try to just give a bit of a synopsis. We're going to read these verses, and then I will explain how I understand them. And we won't be able to look at nearly all of the historical details and, the, um, and everything that pertains to these. But let's read here. It says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, and to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Seventy weeks, he says, are determined upon thy people. Now this seventy weeks is... Commonly understood to actually be referring to a a seven of sevens or a seven of seventies, seventy weeks. And here prophetically, he uses the term weeks or the seventy weeks to represent seventy sevens. Now, seventy sevens is four hundred and ninety. And so this period is a period of 490 years, each day representing a year. So he's saying 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness and, and and then he says in verse 25 know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks so three score and two a score being 20 three score being 60 and two plus 7, 7 plus 62 makes 69. So what he's saying here is that uh, prophetically speaking here, in 69 weeks or, if we say it in terms of years, would be uh, 490 minus 7, would be four hundred and eighty what is that 83 483 years from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem now that was a very specific commandment and it was by Cyrus and this remember here Daniel's receiving this vision Cyrus is yet future But there came a time at the end of the 70 years of captivity in Babylon when Cyrus gave a commandment for the children of Israel, the the Jews, to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And so they were sent. And we read about that in Nehemiah and Ezra where they went back. So... from the time of the going forth of that commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks, three score and two weeks, which we have calculated that would be 483 years from the time of that commandment until the Messiah, the Prince. Now if we just look at that issue right there, As in view of the whole scope of history, as the New Testament tells us, that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. And here God is telling Daniel specifically when he can expect that Messiah the prince would arrive. So if you want to understand clearly when the Messiah would be present in Israel, you can look at this verse and calculate from the time that that commandment went forth until the Messiah, 483 years. Did that happen? Yes, it did. And so, here is a a passage of scripture that all who look for a Messiah should study carefully because it tells them when Messiah will come. Now as I've studied this uh, multiple times and I've uh, leaned heavily I would say on the writings of of, um, James Usher who wrote that uh, annals in world history and he was a very noted historian who studied carefully the times and calculated according to the scripture. And the one thing that's very notable about James Usher is that he took the scriptures as the infallible word of God and that any secular history had to be aligned with the word of God and not the other way around. And He calculated carefully that from the time that the commandment went forth to build Jerusalem until the day that Jesus was baptized and began his public ministry was 483 plus three and a half. He calculated it to be 86 And a half years, from the time of the commandment till the time that Jesus was baptized. No, I'm sorry. Let me take that back. It was 483 at that moment, and then three and a half years later, which we know from the scripture, it can be calculated that Jesus' ministry on the earth was for three and a half years. From the time of his baptism and his public ministry began until the time of his crucifixion was three and a half years. Now, in verse 27, it says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Now, James Osher would understand that while that is also talking about uh, the time frame in the end, perhaps where the, um, the Antichrist causes the sacrifice to cease, and it talks about the abomination of desolation here, Jesus made reference to that very specifically, he said, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Uh, But there is also a picture here in verse 25, no I'm sorry, in verse 26, after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. So it gets, it gets a bit complex here in, in, in the timing of everything, but as James Usher calculated was that the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, and you might come across that often if you read much in books on prophecy and so on, they talk about the 70th week of Daniel. And James Usher would believe that that began, that 70th week began when Jesus' public ministry began, and in the midst of the week he was cut off, but not for himself. And it was also the time when the sacrifice and the ablation was, it came to an end, although It was continued, actually, by the Jewish people. But if we look at the the fulfillment of Christ, um, he was the one who was the end of the law. He fulfilled the law. He brought an end to the daily sacrifice. And you have that picture of how when he died, the veil of the temple's rent from top to bottom, and we now can enter into the Holy of Holies It was by his blood that he entered into that holy place once for all and put an end to the sacrifice of animals for sins. However, some of the Jews continued in that unbelief uh, until about 70 AD in the destruction of Jerusalem. So we have here... Him telling Daniel, the Gabriel is telling him that there's going to be a space of time when this commandment goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem. It will be rebuilt, it says here. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Remember, this is all future yet for Daniel. And, but it did come to pass. And the Messiah would come. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, not for himself. And then he says here that the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now there's been a bit of... Uh, Difficulty to understand this, and some have thought of one interpretation, some another. Excuse me. But here's where I have come to in my studies. It's talking about here, the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And historically we know that the city and the sanctuary was destroyed in A.D. 70 when the Roman general under Titus came against the city of Jerusalem because of their rebellion and he was there to put down this rebellion and they encircled the city and came against it and in that campaign they seized the city and the temple was burned and destroyed and that's when the destruction came upon the city and it was made desolate. There was like the overspreading abomination, he shall make it desolate. There's a very parallel thing said of the Antichrist at the end of time. Now how do we understand what it says here that the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. As I said, one could write a book about this and a whole few chapters could be written about this. But the people... Of the prince, this word "people" means ethnos or the ethnic people of the prince. Now, some have understood that to mean so um, the general here under this in this campaign or this military conquest was Titus, and he was a an Italian a Roman, and so they have concluded that the people of the Antichrist will be Roman or Italian, European. It will be a revived Roman Empire, they would say, and they look at this verse here as proof. But if one looks at what is actually recorded in history, we find that For the most part, the Romans in their time of conquest, in the hundreds of years that they ruled, they would go out and conquer a nation. But as they did that, the the military might of Rome would have eventually come to an end because there were not enough Italians to send out and to control the populations of all these regions. And so... They began a system of where they would, when they conquered a people, they gathered in the military age men and actually conscripted them to fight in their wars and to maintain peace. And so many of the legions of the Roman armies were from regions outside of uh, Rome or, or Italy. And as you read Josephus and other historians about what actually took place here, they actually list the legions that Titus had under his control and find that by far the vast majority of his army, which numbered about 60,000 soldiers plus auxiliaries and helpers and so on, that at least 50,000 or more were actually ethnically Middle Eastern people from um, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and those regions, as we know those names today. Syria would have been what we know as Syria back then. Uh, Lebanon, likewise. Uh, Jordan is not uh, the same name that it was back in that day. So the ethnic um, people that were with Titus were actually Middle Eastern Arabs who were the ones who came against the city and the sanctuary. And it is even recorded... (coughs) I believe it's in Josephus, that when news came to Titus that the temple was being burnt, he came down with great haste and attempted to stop the burning of the temple. And he shouted and gave orders. But it was not heeded by the army. They were intent on burning this temple and the people in it and everything. They were so enraged and the hatred that they had against the Jewish people was so great that they simply just ignored their commander and let it burn. So that is the historical record. So it wasn't even that Titus intended or wanted the temple to be burned. But his army did it and he could not even control them. But ethnically, they were Middle Eastern Arab people. Now it says here, the people or the ethnic people of the prince that shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And many have seen this while it was done in A.D. 70, it is also prophetic of what is yet to come under the Antichrist. And there is a lot of speculation as to how that all will be. Is, you know, are they going to rebuild another temple? Because you know, it talks about the temple being destroyed. It's, it talks about the Antichrist sitting in the temple of God as though he is God. Paul uh, makes reference to that. And I don't know. There are details that we just don't know. We can make some assumptions. But most of those need to be held a bit loosely because if it's not specifically said, we can't be very uh, certain or dogmatic about it because it's things that are yet future and, and somewhat unknown. But as I would understand this passage, it would tell us that the people of the Antichrist are of the same ethnic background as the people that came in A.D. 70 and destroyed the city and the sanctuary. And ethnically, ethnically, they were Middle Eastern people, not European or Italian, uh, for the most part. They were ethnically Middle Eastern Arabs. That ties in with the Vision that we had in our last message on in Daniel chapter seven on that last uh, beast, the Middle Eastern beast that um, has seven heads and ten horns, and as I said, seems to represent the Islamic Empire, and the Islamic Empire ties in with the Middle Eastern people of Arab descent. It also ties in with the vision in chapter 2 where we had that um, vision of the statue of metallic substance and it said that the iron and the clay and the toes did not mix but it talked about uh, they shall be called Arab or the mixed race, the mixed people uh, even as the clay and the iron don't mix. Uh, and there's, there's kind of a play on words in that prophecy there so in summary you might ask again what does this have to do with my daily life as I think about these things I am, I am persuaded that we are coming ever closer to the end of time And what may seem like obscure history could suddenly and very suddenly, sooner than we think, come before us and we be faced with these realities and perhaps our understanding will then be greatly enlarged as we see these things come to pass, uh, perhaps even in our day. So, while we may think, well, this doesn't pertain to my daily life, and I would say yes, or in many ways it might not, but let us be confident that God knows. He has a plan, he knows the end from the beginning, and he saw fit to tell us a lot of things about what is to come, and let us just be confident in our God. Be humble like Daniel and acknowledge that God is the sovereign God. He is the one of mercy and judgment and we we are his people. May the Lord bless.